For today, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse 12. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Now, before we can just jump into a single verse, we have to do a little bit of a background on Ephesians. A couple of years ago, the pastor was preaching through Acts, and he covered Acts chapter 19, which was the time that Paul was in Ephesus for about three years. The gospel message moved throughout Asia Minor from the seedbed of Paul's gospel preaching in Ephesus. This is the city, if you recall, was at the world's largest amphitheater at that time. It was designed to hold up to maybe 50,000 people, which is more seating capability than the St. Louis Cardinals have in their stadium. That gives you an idea of what the size of it looked like. It was also considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And in this city... The worship of Diana and her temple was present, and people came from all over to go into that temple and see the wonders of it. Demetrius, one of the men in Ephesus, and his silversmith union, they made money off of this process. They, they sold shrines and little idols and things that you could use for your journeys and for your home. And there's a good income that was, came from this. So you see now where there's going to be this conflict. Paul comes in, gospel message, Demetrius and his fellow workers preaching a totally different kind of religion. Now... In time, Paul's gospel message is going to spread, and it's going to change people's lives, and it's going to change their hearts. And when they do, they don't need Demetrius anymore. And that was the point at which Demetrius got angry, and his buddies. They lost their income. And not only that, they were afraid that Ephesus would fall in the eyes of the world, no longer being this great center of Diana's worship. So this ended up resulting in a, a riot. And not only a riot, there's a lot of confusion too, because if you read Acts chapter 19, you find that all these men who made their money off of Diana and the shrines and the idols, they're in the, in the streets of the city, and the other people who aren't part of that, they don't even know what's going on. There's a crowd of people moving toward the theater. Everybody's angry, shouting. There's more confusion, actually, than there was anger from Demetrius' group. They all go into that theater that I just spoke about, and for two hours, they sing out, chanting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Two hours of that. Maddening. The only thing I can compare that to is when you're working with little kids and they go, why? 
and you go to the next level. Why and why? And soon you're like, because I said so, right? Two hours. I've never had a kid hold up for two hours. Five minutes was enough for me. And they had to listen to that for two hours. So that was covered in Acts chapter 19. In addition to that, we know that in First and Second Timothy, which is also covered by the pastor, Timothy was sent to Ephesus to help identify elders and deacons in the church. So you have to remember that Ephesus came from this idol-worshiping group of people, salvation, and then how do you form a church? What does a church look like? This is complicated stuff when you don't have anything to go by. And we also know from the pastor's preaching again that John, the apostle, went to Ephesus and he would write 1 John to that church to refute Gnosticism. Gnosticism, of course, is this other knowledge, insightful religion, so to speak, different than the true gospel. So from that idle background, difficulties forming a church, difficulty with the doctrine, not sure who's correct, you can see where there would be great conflict if one man stood up and gave a sermon about the gospel of Jesus Christ and another man off to the side is telling people, don't listen to that, you need to follow me because I know the insightful truths about this. And so that's why John wrote uh, to the Ephesians to refute that blasphemy. Then John will be exiled to the Isle of Patmos. It's about 50 miles off the coast of Ephesus. And there's where he will pen the book of Revelation. And inside that book, chapter 2, there is comments, statements made by Jesus in regard to the church at Ephesus. They lost their first love. That's also been covered by the pastor. So if this were an email, instead of me delivering it, I would have a few, you know, those bullet points, and then I have links to all the pastor's sermons. And that'd be it. You guys, you know, take it from here. I'm done. In fact, uh, now that I think about it, why am I up here? <laughs> Everything's already been done, you know? Including the material I'm about to do today. But from Ephesians chapter 2 and 12 and 13 and the first portion of Ephesians 2, we're going to see a contrast. The Bible is filled with contrasts. The right path. The wide and narrow ways. Sin. Salvation. Constantly contrasted against each other. Ephesians 2 brings out that contrast. You ever seen those TV ads of before and after pictures of some celebrity that lost 50 pounds in like five weeks and he's in great shape and looks wonderful? You ever see those? The problem is, after they lost the 50 pounds, it's still the same self-absorbed, narcissistic individual 
They're just thinner and richer now. Only difference is that right there. Ephesians chapter 2 is going to give us a before and after picture of mankind. In the TV ad, a combination of willpower and the purchase of a weight loss program, you too can look great. Maybe not everybody here, but I mean most of you can look great, right? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 paints a picture that was before, and the after picture is not because of willpower or program that you bought into. In fact, you have to keep yourself, you would have kept yourself in that before picture, with the exception of verse 4, but God, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, and verse 22, through the Spirit. Our before life was without Christ, but now in Christ, we have a new life purpose. So let's start going through the beginning of Ephesians 2. This is actually an intro so that when we get to 12, 12 makes sense. Verse 1, and you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. Paul wrote to Ephesus, but it rings true today. All of us, all of them, all of this world, dead and doomed in sin. That's the before picture, folks. Verse 2, wherein time passed, ye walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of error, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So, we were not physically dead, we were spiritually dead. And that meant we walked about the world, living our life in a manner that was worldly. For the Ephesians, it was a world that was filled with idolatry, following Satan. When they were singing out loudly, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, they might as well have said, Great is Satan of all of us. That is who Diana came from. And that is who those people were following. In verse 3, Among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, behaving in a way designed to satisfy our own desires, our own passions, and our basic mindset was geared toward disobedience. Not caring for God, not caring about his truth, not caring about his salvation, and therefore follow, falling, uh, falling under his wrath. But then two of the most dramatic words in the, in the Bible, or in verse 4. But God. One through three. It's you, folks. That's you. And you would have stayed that way. And you would have enjoyed that way. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us. Love mercy, grace, despite an evil nature and a deprived, depraved mind. 
In verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved. Verse 1 said, who were dead in trespasses and sin. Some work had to be put into those individuals, into us, that take us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it was done with Christ through his grace. And you note here, remember how proud the Ephesians were of their city and their religious worship? Great is Diana. Great is this city who follow her. Same pride may have taken them to a point where they would have just replaced Diana with Jesus' name. Paul takes away that element. By grace are ye saved. You can't take any pride in it when somebody else is doing the work. In verse 6, And hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 19 through 20, According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and sat him at his own right hand, in heavenly places. So too were we raised from death, sin-filled tomb, and put us in a heavenly seat. And when you look at verse 2 of chapter 2, what were you doing previously? You were walking about, busily hurrying through life, following Satan, following your passions, following your desires, and what did he do for us? Provide a rest. Raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How do you like that one? Well, I don't know for sure how that worked out this weekend for the pastor. I suppose you put, put a few hours in to study, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Drive to Cincinnati, get everything prepared, right? Conduct a seminar, drive home, go to bed late, get up early, then he has to listen to me. Now he's sorry he went. <laughs> Hurry, scurry through life, unaware and unconcerned about Jesus. And when he enters in that life, he pulls you out of that kind of life. He pulls you out of that concern of fulfilling your desires. And he gives you a place of rest. That in itself sounds wonderful, doesn't it? In verse 7, that in ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through 
Christ Jesus. So we're raised, seated, so that God can show proof of his grace through Christ. Our placement in heavenly places is an ongoing demonstration of his immeasurable riches of divine grace. Proof of it. The proof of his grace. Now think about this. Look around you if you want to. His proof of his grace is actually his people. This group here is living proof of God's grace. You start looking around at everybody, you're like, yeah, I get it for these folks, right? I can see why that was necessary. In verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. The meeting we had recently covered this, right? Sola Cartia. Because if we would have saved ourselves, we would go about telling everybody how wonderful we are because we took ourselves out of the condition we were in and we went ahead and improved our life. Self-help. Nothing about that is in the Bible. It's the gift of God. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Paul tells the Ephesians that they were the workmanship of God through Christ. Think about the city again. Think about Demetrius and his fellow workers. And they were workmen. And they were craftsmen. And they created things. They didn't really create anything. They just made things. They took objects that existed and formed them differently. That's not creation. That's just art like Tony likes to do, right? Paul wants them to know that out of that idle sculpting hands is something greater. That God has created this wonderful workmanship for a new purpose unto good works. They were taken out of self-serving work into the good works of God. And going back to verse 2 again, We no longer have to walk to the beat of the world. Doesn't the world have its own way of directing us? Isn't the world pushing us to follow their agenda? It's not necessary to continue on with that. Where in times past you walked according to the course of this world. This world is moving away from God. Okay? And if you want to say... The United States is a Christian nation. I think we got an argument. Because it's not. It's marching us away from God. A few things have been improved lately. But in general, we're on a course of the world. Moving away from God. And in verse 10, 
He's, Paul writes and says that we can walk differently. We don't have to walk according to the power of the prince of the power of error, Satan. We can walk within the good works of God through Jesus Christ. Verse 11. Wherefore, remember. I think that should be a motto of every Christian life. Wherefore, remember. Sometimes folks are saved for so long, they think they were saved from birth. They forget. Paul says, remember. Don't forget those things. Everything stated in the first ten verses are where you came from. Remember that. When you're working with someone else and they're doing things that you find offensive, they're not living as a godly Christian, nor claim to be. Wherefore, remember that at one time, you too walked just like that. That ye, being times past, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Interesting church at Ephesus. There are Jews, there are Greeks. There are saved, and there's unsaved in every church. Idol worshipers, Jehovah worshipers. Mixed bag of folks trying to direct them on the path of the gospel message. Sometimes good, First John tells us, sometimes failed. But... Being subject and controlled by carnal appetites and pleasures is not a necessary component of the Christian life. While living unsaved. In verse 12, there are five things they lived without previously. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Five withouts. First one up, without Christ. Acts chapter 19 that we've been discussing, we know that the Ephesians worshipped the goddess Diana. Part of the religious practice of Diana was the use of ritual prostitution whereby the devotees, the members, whatever you want to call them, became joined with the goddess through her priestesses. How vile, how deep, how consuming was this? One philosopher, commenting on the moral condition of Ephesus, wrote that the inhabitants of the city were fit only to be drowned. That's what he thought of that crowd of people. And Jesus looked down at them, and he died for some of them. Interesting, isn't it? For by grace were they saved from being drowned by a philosopher. He went on to say that the reason he could never smile or laugh was because he lived in the midst of such terrible uncleanliness. 
This is a philosopher. I didn't say it was Paul. <laughs> it's some guy that's just sitting there thinking, brooding over what's happening in that city. And he says, you know what, folks? We're unclean. We're horrible. Best thing we could do is fill a baptistry and start drowning people. They were without Christ. And verse 3 that we've already looked at, these folks were worshiping their lust, their desires. They were without Christ, without the expectation of Christ's salvation. In fact, they had no interest in his salvation. Does that sound familiar? Can I fill in a different city for Ephesus? Can I call it something else? Washington? Illinois. We already know about Washington, D.C. It fills in real easy there, doesn't it? West Coast, East Coast, what? Right here among us. Right here around this church. Right within the circle of your life. Without Christ. Paul said, remember what you used to be like? Do you remember that? Here's some things you were missing out on, folks. You were without Christ. Without citizenship. They were aliens, strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. They had no connection with the people of God and no understanding of the God-ordained system of the proper worship of the true God. They were strangers to true religion. Next, they were without the promises of God. The covenants of promise were those promises made by God to his people, the Jews. And God promised the descendants of Abraham future blessings that were not provided to the Gentiles, especially his promise of a Messiah. But here's where it gets sad. Because I can see a city that's busily walking around, making money, worshiping an idol, going about daily life, thinking that everything was good because their pockets were lined. Paul looks at them and he says, they were without hope. They didn't see it that way, did they? I'm busy making money. I'm busy doing my job. I'm busy going in the temple. I'm doing all kinds of things. And God looks at that group of people and he says, they've got nothing. They are actually so bankrupt, they don't even have hope. There is, if we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, Paul addresses this same issue there. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are 
asleep, those that are dead, that ye sorrow not, even as others, which have no hope. The folks that die without a Savior have no hope after this life. It's complete. The story is written. Without that divine promise, their situation, no matter how wealthy they are, how powerful they are, how important they are, they live a life that has no hope. Same today. You can be busy about your life, but without Christ, you have no hope in this world and you have no hope in the next. And finally, he finishes off with the fifth, without. Without God in the world. Now, that doesn't mean that God didn't exist in their world. He was there, been there from, as far as the world's concerned, day one. That Greek word is atheos. We get our word atheist. God was in the world, but he was not part of their world. Their world was consumed with idolatry, with themselves, with their passions, with their desires. Without God in this world, you still are physically alive. Spiritually dead is what Paul's been talking about. Without God, all there is in this world is this world. You look around at it. Is that enough? Is this world enough to satisfy? Something's missing in this world. So I'll leave it there to all the doom and gloom and we'll just go on, right? That's the thing that was remarkable about Paul. He doesn't leave you hanging. All right, there's no hope for you folks. He drops in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Yeah, they were sometimes far off, right? In that temple of Diana, they were far off with Demetrius and his gang building all these little shrines and idols. But when we get to verse 13, it kind of reminds us about what happened in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, but now in Christ Jesus, you've been made close to Jesus. So when he closes this out, he says, but now something has changed. We do not have to be without Christ. We can be in Christ, meaning we can be close to God, and that closeness comes through the blood of Christ. But now we don't have to be aliens without a citizenship. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, Ephesians 2, 19. But now we don't have to be without the promises of God. In Ephesians 3, 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promises.
promised in Christ by the gospel. But now, we don't have to be without hope. Isn't that wonderful? We don't have to be hopeless. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, a living hope is what that means, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. That whole city of Ephesus is no longer there. It wasn't enduring. But now, we don't have to be without God in this world. Ephesians 3.19, And to know the love of Christ, which passes in the knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. You can be filled with him. Those folks that he was writing to, they were without God, without hope. But through Christ, there is hope. And there's filling for that dissatisfaction that people often feel in this life. That hollowness that everybody has experienced at some point in time. That the world is just not enough. But I will fill it with something that makes the pain go away. Paul writes here that that filling is from God through Jesus Christ. And if this were that infomercial, now would be the time for me to give you the 1-800 number to call so you can buy the product. And some folks are selling Jesus. You've got to admit it. Some folks are. Buy this book, send me some money. I'll send you something that costs about two cents and a stamp. And they think they're being filled by that without being told what Christ truly is. Christ is not a product. It's not for sale. It's a gift. the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus are not of your own doing or getting. Our culture is so filled with getting something else. You're not going to go out there and get Jesus. Jesus enters lives, changes those lives, brings hope, brings promise, brings purpose. How much does it cost? It costs Jesus a lot. But on our side, it's a gift. 